So I want to open this morning with a question for you. And that is, what does it look like to worship God? If you could get an image, a visual in your mind of what it looks like to worship God, what would that be? For a long time in my life, I had two primary images. One was this. It's singing songs in a church building, maybe even at a Christian concert. This very well could have been a picture of me in high school or college at a Christian concert or in my church. Um, This was one of my images. My other image was this, alone, outside in nature, probably on a beach, reading the Bible, praying alone with God, This, too, could have been a picture that I could have taken as a teen, but we didn't have smartphones or Instagram back then, and I'm not really tech-savvy anyway, so this is just a picture I wish I would have taken as a teen. This is another image that would have been in my mind. Well, these two regular practices, singing in a church building and reading my Bible and praying on my own, these were the ways I understood worship. And these two practices are, they have been, they still are, they still will be very important and influential in my life. And if you've been here the past two weeks, you might recognize that these are two of the ways that we've seen God's people worshiping. King Solomon in the 900s BC, he built this big, beautiful temple where God's people could go and in their own elaborate way worship God through harps and sacrifices of animals. Are you glad that we don't do that anymore, sacrificing thousands of cattle up here? Yes. (laughs) One person's glad that we don't do that. Well, then last week we heard the story of Elijah. He met God on top of the mountain, and in the sheer silence, God spoke to him. This isn't a real picture of Elijah, in case you're curious. He definitely did not have a smartphone or Instagram. But we can imagine that maybe this is what it was like. So we've seen in scripture that God does meet his people in these forms of worship, in this organized building where we sing songs, offer sacrifices, and when we're by ourselves listening for God in the silence. God wants us to do these things. These are very important ways we worship. But this isn't all. Rather, God calls us to worship with our entire lives. With every single thing we do. And it turns out that God has some very serious words to say to us if we go through all of these right religious forms, like worship services and our daily devotions, and yet we neglect to worship God and the other parts of our lives. God has especially hard words if those other parts of our lives are contributing to the mistreatment of others. But now I'm just going to let God speak for himself. So hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Amos. But before we read, let us pray. God, you alone are our judge. So send your spirit of truth to expose our own complacency, our areas of self-deception, so that we may surrender to your mercy and follow your will. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear these words of the Lord from the prophet Amos, chapters 1 and then chapter 5. 
The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah, and in the days of King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds wither, and the top of Carmel dries up. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. These are strong words of the Lord, are they not? But they are very good words. Words of hope and healing for us and for our world. And I pray that by the end you will see how. But before I get into the context in which Prophet Amos was speaking, because it's a very dark, hard context, I'm going to give us a a lighter example, an everyday example that most all of us can relate to. It's the modern-day version of how my mother taught me these words as a child. So who here has elementary school-age children or are teachers of elementary? Anyone? Yes. Okay. So parent-teacher conferences, you still do those? Yes. Just got in there like, ah, just got done. So every year my mom was the one who would go to these, and afterwards she would tell me about the conversation with the teacher um, it was just as a teaching tool, I think. I had a smart mom. So I was a, you have to understand, I was a really anal student. Um, I was overly concerned with my grades, like too much so. So the teacher, they would pull out the report card and be like, Stephanie's doing great, yada, 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 gold stars. And my mom would always stop the teacher. At least this is what she told me. She would stop the teacher and say, okay, fine, good. Put away the report card. This is what I want to know. How does my daughter treat the other students? How does she treat the other kids? How does she treat especially the kids who are on the margins? What about that kid who has no one to sit with? What does she do about him? Does she stand up for the kid who's getting picked on? How does she treat the kids who are most vulnerable in her class? If I got a C, as long as I was trying, mom didn't care. But if she ever heard that I was bullying other kids, or if I was ever pushing another kid down physically or verbally in order to get ahead myself, I don't even want to imagine the wrath of mama. You all been there? Yeah. My mom, if she would have heard that at the conference, she would have roared like a lion. 
she would have come home and said, Stephanie, I despise your report card. I hate your gold stars, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That was at the heart of my mom. Friends, this is what's going on in the book of Amos. At first glance, the report card for God's people looks really good. In terms of their religious festivals and assemblies, straight A's. In terms of burnt offerings, gold stars. Everyone's at the temple. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing according to their ideas. But then God asks the question, how are they treating the others? In particular, I want to know how are they treating those who are most vulnerable in their midst and in the nations around them? How are they treating the people who are getting picked on and who are at the lowest bottom of the social scale? That's what I want to know. And then we get the teacher's report. And my friends, it is not so good. We read this in Amos 2. They who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and they push the afflicted out of the way. Father and son go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink wine bought with fines that they imposed. So friends, this is what's going on. In the days of this prophecy, which is about 762 B.C., the northern nation of Israel, they look like they're doing pretty well. There's a, some peace, and it looks like they're pretty prosperous, but that prosperity is just for a few. There's this increasing gap between the really wealthy and the really poor, and it turns out that the really wealthy are neglecting and even intentionally taking advantage of the poor. And the poor are usually those who are at the margins. Remember, how do you treat those on the margins? How do you treat those who are most vulnerable? And then we read in Amos 8, Hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? We will make the ephah small and the shekel great and practice deceit with false balances, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and selling the sweepings of the wheat. So God's people, they are going through the motions of religious festivals, their new moons and their Sabbaths. But then right away, they jump into these economic practices that are trampling the poor and the needy, the vulnerable in their land. This phrase, buying the poor and the needy for a pair of sandals, that means that they would force people into slavery for a very small debt. Remember these things that I'm explaining because you're going to hear them come alive in our modern context in a few minutes. So they sell people into slavery for a very small debt. And then we see more of these economic abuses at, back in Amos 2. They laid themselves down beside every altar on garments taken and pledged. So that doesn't make a lot of sense to us today, but back then what happened is that most people, especially if you were poor, you only had one outer garment. That was your cloak. 
And if you needed a loan, say for a medical emergency or to get some food, you would offer your cloak to a wealthier person, and then you would promise to work for them to pay back the money, but your cloak was your pledge that you were going to pay it back. But see, God, he cares for the the person who's given this cloak. So he says, at night, you need to give their cloak back because that's the only thing that they own to keep them warm. And the nights are cold in the semi-arid Mideast. They're going to freeze without that cloak. So give it back. God's people, you know what they're doing? They're hoarding the cloaks and they're laying them down to make a mattress so that they are nice and cozy when they sleep while their neighbor possibly freezes to death. And then we read in the rest of verse 8 that they are buying wine imposed with the fines they impose. So they would take this cloak as a pledge and they would have the person work it off, but they would give them these fines that are just enormous so that the person could never pay off the debt. They pretty much become their slave. And then you know what they do with those debts? They buy things for themselves like wine. So here the wealthy are making themselves cushy and comfortable while the people right next to them are suffering at their expense. And friends, these things aren't happening in secret. These things are happening by the altar. They're happening in the very places that they worship. They're not even hiding these practices. So this is a major problem, is it not? It's a big problem. But that's not all. We can't ignore this really uncomfortable part of verse 7, that the father and son go into the same girl. Okay, so this is not a case of a mature woman going out and seducing members of the same family. These are young girls, and they're not doing this voluntarily. This is about exploitation. This is young girls being exploited for their bodies. This is rape. And as we know, rape has to do with power, the gross abuse of power. So there we go, money, sex, and power. I've named all three of them. Are you uncomfortable yet? Yes. Hush. We can't avoid this, friends. It's in our Bible. We can't skip over it. It's there, and this is the context of our scripture passage. If you wonder why the Lord uses such harsh words, this is why. God's people are going through religious forms. They're getting straight A's and gold stars and the things that they want to get straight A's and gold stars in. But their treatment of others is terrible. They are grossly mistreating those who are most vulnerable on a daily basis through their everyday actions. Now let's take a breather, and I want to uh, tell you that I really struggled for a while on if and how to preach this text when we learned about the baptisms of Logan and Oliver that we scheduled a few weeks ago to happen today. But, as you know, we are following the narrative lectionary. So this text was chosen for us months ago. We had been planning on this months ago. And then as the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit showed me that 
This perhaps is a perfect occasion for a text like this. Because in baptism, we are reminded that God cares for the weak and vulnerable, right? Who is more vulnerable than a baby? Oliver and Logan, they can barely hold their heads up. And yet God declares that God loves them fiercely. And God wants the very best for them. God wants them to flourish, body, mind, and soul. Amen? And God has given them the gift of a family. And he calls his family, their parents, and us, the spiritual family, to care for them. Friends, you better believe that if anyone ever tries to trample or mistreat Oliver or Logan, a hundred plus people are going to be here standing up for them. Are we not? Yes. Yes, Larry. They are the children of God's family, and we are called to care for them. But friends, did you know that there are millions of children around the world who don't have people to step in for them? God has millions of children around the world who are daily being trampled and mistreated, who are living the atrocities of Amos Day. It wasn't just an issue back then. It is still an issue today. Amos' words are alive and well today. And God is calling us, his church, to step up and protect his children. So rather than just giving you statistics, what I'm going to do later, I'm going to introduce you to one of these children. It's a video testimony of a young girl named New who was sold into the sex slavery industry. This is the video that we've been giving you some parental discretion heads up about. There's nothing graphic. It's a 17-year-old girl simply telling her story. But if this is a conversation you'd rather not enter with with your kids, you are welcome to leave. Um, you can go to any of the rooms back there. Um, but it's just, it's just a girl telling her story. So just want to give you a heads up. So listen to New. This is about six minutes long. Um, I do want to give a heads up. She lives in Cambodia. There's a little bit of, she's from Cambodia. There's a little bit of broken English, a little part that's confusing. Her parents died, and so she was raised by her grandmother. So when she speaks of her father, it's a, a man who came and adopted her. So listen now to New's story. Can we dim the lights too? I would like to share my story. I remember I was seven years old near my house was Vietnam church because the school was in church. I have to ask my grandmother if I could go there. She allowed me to go. 
My teacher helped me to study Bible every day, and then I believed in Jesus and became a Christian. Then I went to church every week. I would clean the church each week before it starts. When I was 12 years old, I remember my family had very difficult life because my family did not have work. My grandmother had to borrow the money. She borrowed the money to buy food for my family. She had to pay high interest every day on the money she borrowed. One day, I saw a lady talking with my grandmother when I came back from school. My grandmother told me I might stop going to school. When she said that, I knew I might be so. So I started to pray. I told God I was very scared and I did not know what they would want me to do. Three days later, the lady took me to the doctor to make sure I was virgin. Then the lady took me to the man. I was 12 years old. He was in hotel room, and I had to stay with him for three days. I knew I had to do everything the man wanted me to do. Before the man did everything to me, I said, please do not do this to me. I cried out of God, asking him, help me not be hurt. During those three days, I could not eat or drink anything. I never went to sleep. The first night, I was crying and I was sending all of my things in my life, including sleeping with the man. At the time, I believed God did not love me anymore because of my sin. I had lost all hope. At the end of three days, the lady picked me up and took me back to my house. I was giving some aspirin for my friend, but did not see the doctor. I stayed. I can finish the story. So this is new. She is our sister in Christ. The rest of the story is that she tries to go back to school and the kids are making fun of her because they know that she's been sold. So she drops out of school, which puts her into the poverty cycle again. She begs to be able to go to hair and nail school, as many of the girls do to try to get out of this industry. And eventually she does. She goes to hair and nail school, but she is sold three more times. Her life spirals into depression, and she doesn't see a way out. But then on the other side of the world, in the United States, there's a Christian conference being held, and someone tells the story of new 
They're talking about the human trafficking industry, and news story is told. Someone had heard about it, but they didn't know where she was. And this man, his name is Carl, he decides to make it his life mission to find new. He spends his own money to fly to Cambodia six times to search for her. He finds her. He rescues her. And then he gives up his life as a profitable insurance owner and starts a nonprofit foundation called Remember New to help prevent other vulnerable boys and girls from having to go through the same thing that his adopted daughter had to go through. And you want to know what's beautiful? Like two weeks after being rescued, being cared for, New starts to work for the organization. She's the first employee. She goes to work training other girls to do hair and nails so that they might have employment, so they can escape this industry. It's not just saved for for no purpose, but she's saved and then joyfully helps other people to be saved too. That's the story of our lives as Christians. So this is Carl just an ordinary guy living in the United States who hears a story, takes action. We heard the story from this man whose name is Bob Abel. He's an RCA missionary. So this is a Christian. There are um, very Christian emphases in this organization. He's the RCA missionary, a pastor who trains and oversees staff. We've had conversations with Bob, and we promised Bob that we would show this story because he says the one of the biggest things is that American Christians, it's not like we're um, like greedy or, or neglectful or in a lot of ways. It's just a lot of times we don't know. A lot of times our world hides these things from us. They don't want us to hear stories like this. So a lot of our call is to make this known and then invite you to see how God might call you to respond. So some of the information that Bob learned um, as the RCA missionary is some of this that we'll share with you. 1.2 million children sold into sex slavery each year. It's one child every 26 seconds, 3,300 every day, some as young as toddlers. The life expectancy of a child that's sold is only three years. Friends, this is happening right now on our watch all around the world, even here in the United States. It happens here too. So suddenly this text from Amos 2 doesn't sound so distant anymore, does it? And Amos 8 isn't too distant from our text either because there are millions of other vulnerable people, including children who are trapped in other forms of slavery, forced to work in fields and factories, long, grueling hours under brutal conditions, in order to make products that you and I wear and use every day, like our clothes and our jewelry and our electronics and our beauty products, this Christmas, as the shopping sprees ensue, the TV advertisements aren't going to tell you that piece. So the reality is slavery is outlawed in every country, and yet government authorities in many countries turn a blind eye because they get a lot of profit from not mentioning this. That's because modern-day slavery, it's really profitable, $150 billion every year. Those of you who are in businesses, this is more than the annual profits of Apple, Exxon, Samsung, BP, and Microsoft combined. 
from modern day slavery. This is a big deal. Sadly, in our modern global economy, it's an industry that most all of us participate in, in one way or another, most of us here in this room as consumers. But it's not hopeless. Um, I invite you to pull out your bulletin. Um, you'll see in here some, some responding to the word points that I want to draw your attention to, and I encourage you to keep this bulletin. So one of the things that's interesting, if you want to see how much our lives are affected by this, is um, this number four, the implement these tools. So if you see this one called slaveryfootprint.org, it's a quick little online survey. You fill out um, some simple questions about your lifestyle, and it tells you about how many slaves you have working for you to produce all the things that you use on a daily basis. We have around 50. Brandon and I have around 50 slaves that are part, have been part of our clothing and home and car and all these things that we use. And friends, that's even after eight years of trying to make steps to become more conscientious. 50. Friends, this Amos text hit home for me this week. These are words for me. Maybe they're words for you, too. Now, as I said, eight years ago was when I started, Brandon and I started trying to think differently, and that's because we first heard about human trafficking, and we also started seminary at the same time, which meant that we were diving deeply into scripture and theology, and I want to hit hard here, because this is a God issue that comes out of scripture. If we read scripture, if we uphold scripture, we have to talk about scripture, and it is in scripture. And this is where my idea of worship began to expand. It's when my ideas of righteousness and justice began to expand. So let me give these definitions, and then we're going to turn to the really hopeful piece, because I know this feels heavy. But this is what we read in scripture, that God is a God of justice and righteousness. And I used to think of righteousness as like those self-righteous people, right? The people who did everything right, crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's. That was my idea of righteousness. But in scripture, it's tzedakah is the Hebrew, and it means living rightly, just living rightly with God and others. And that involves treating God, others, and the whole created world as God intended us to treat them. And justice is mishpat. Mishpat means setting things right. Do you see the connection? Living rightly, setting things right. So mishpat, it most often refer, refers to restorative justice. So there's retributive justice that we think of as somebody does something wrong and they have to pay the consequence. This is the reason why some people get eerie about the word justice because they think it means putting down the hammer. And sometimes it does. A hammer needs to be put down. But God is always about restoration. You want to know the biggest time that this Amos text was used in our American history? By MLK Jr., He preached this text in the early 60s when the church was at its height of attendance. People were going to church, doing the right religious things, but there was a problem, wasn't there? 
this disparity between white and black. And he preached this to say, let justice roll down. Now, what he did not mean was, I hate my white brothers and sisters. No, because, like, he didn't hate us. That's us. He said, I I love my black brothers and sisters, too, and I want us to live in right relationship. It's not that I want an inverse. It's that I want us to live rightly together. So that's what it means. It means seeking out the helpless and the vulnerable, those who are being taken advantage of, those who are down here who don't have a voice, and saying, hey, let's live in right relationship. Let's treat them how God intends them to be treated. That is mishpat. It is restorative. Does that make sense? Yeah. So righteousness and justice, these are interchangeable. They, they always go together in the New Testament. They're pretty much the same word. And they're the heart of God. God wants us to live rightly, to live in right relationship with God and right relationship with people. Love God, love others, as someone once said. Do you know who that someone is? Jesus. Jesus says, love God, love others. That's righteousness and justice, my friends. Righteousness and justice. So part of righteousness and justice is singing to God, immersing ourselves in scripture, praying. We have to do this in order to be people of justice. We have to get ourselves right aligned with God. But it can't stop there. It has to overflow into the rest of our lives, into every other part of so these used to be my images of worship. But over the years, God has helped me to get other images. Like when I go to the grocery store, where is my food coming from? Are the people being treated fairly who grew this? Or my clothing? I've learned that a lot of child slave labor is involved in clothing industry. Or our electronics Or even now we're in the diaper stage. Where do these diapers come from? What kind of impact does it have when I throw them away? These are a lot of questions that we have to ask because it's not just about us and God. It's about everybody, even the people we can't see. Okay. I want to bring you to some really easy tools because my... um, my goal is not to overwhelm you. I'm going to get to that in a, in a minute about what God is doing in the world. But one of the ways that God is acting is giving us some helpful guides. You'll see here the Baptist World Aid Guide and Good Guide. There are some really easy electronic tools you can use to look up your products. Where does it come from? How are the people being treated? What kind of impact does this have? All of us might not be called to act as Carl did to give up everything and start a nonprofit. But all of us can just look online to see where our sweater comes from, can't we? And if it says, it was made by a lot of child slave labor, maybe we can say, no thanks, I'll get another one. It's, we can do simple things like that. And a note on this, with all of these recommendations, all of this information that is in here, I want to make a quick note that this is not a conservative or a liberal issue. Maybe you've heard that, that only conservatives care about this or only liberals care about this. This is a God issue. Because all throughout scripture we told that God is a God of justice and righteousness and he calls people to justice and righteousness. If you read the Bible, you can't ignore it. So this is a, this is a God issue. And that's how we're going to end today with the emphasis on God. 
Because, friends, this isn't about us. I don't know about you, but when I first started to learn about this, I was overwhelmed. This week, I just had to take a moment to just sit and weep. It's re- it can feel really heavy and hard. The good news is, God is at work. Jesus Christ has already come. Jesus Christ has already said that he will return. And one day, all the injustices will be gone. It's not up to us. God is going to do it whether we participate or not. Is that good news? Yes. It is really good news to the victims who are suffering, like new or children that we can't even see who are vulnerable. It is really good news that God is at work, that it's not up to us because we can't do it on our own. But it is good news that God invites us to participate, ordinary people like you and me. God offers us the opportunity to repent of ways that aren't just and righteous and offers us new avenues to live more fully into God's mission in the world. And that's why this text is also appropriate for the day of baptisms. Because our prayer for Logan and Oliver is that when they grow up, they would live into this full mission as God's adopted children. Not just that they would go to worship on Sunday mornings and say their evening prayers, but that their whole lives would be a life committed to God's redemptive works. Because this is the only kind of life that is going to give them the joy and purpose that God wants for them. To live their whole lives for God. So we're going to close with this example. You remember Carl Ralston, this guy who uh, found new? You want to know the kind of joy that he gets to experience in this call to justice and righteousness? Last year, he got to walk new down the aisle. She got married to a really solid Christian man. She's still working for the foundation. She is living a flourishing, joyful life. A girl once expected to live three years, now grown and flourishing. It wasn't because of Carl. It was because of what God was doing. But Carl said yes. And Carl got to participate and gets this joy. But it's not just new. It's 1,700 other children who have been prevented from being sold. Children like this, these are real children that have been helped by the organization. And these little boys, and these boys and girls, and these, and those. That's my favorite picture. Friends, this is what righteousness and justice looks like. It looks like smiling and joy and peace for f- and flourishing for all people, including those who are most vulnerable. Who doesn't want to participate in that? Come on. So this week, I encourage you, as you read your Bible, as you pray, as you sing, I invite you to ask yourself, how are your everyday actions joining in this joyful work that God is doing in the world? Or my mom, as my mom used to ask, how are you treating the other kids? Not just on the report card, but on the playground and in the lunchroom and all the everyday places you go. How are you participating in God's work of justice and righteousness that leads to such joyful flourishing?
Because, friends, this is what really matters to God, that we live rightly with God and others. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word that, though sometimes hard to hear, is hope and peace and joy for us and for all the world. Help us to live into it this week and always. In Jesus' name, amen.